You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 102, Bennigsen's Gamble. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I would like to invite you to join us on Patreon. There are hours of bonus content available to paid subscribers, the Dispatches. The last installment included discussions on the strange career of Goltz Pasha, communications, and language, including a look at Napoleon's somewhat pathetic attempts to learn English. We are coming up on the 12th of the Dispatches, meaning that if you haven't signed up yet, there is almost a year's worth of material waiting for you to enjoy. It also means that if you bought a year's subscription when we first started, it is about to run out. We would love to have you back, so consider this your reminder to re-up for one more year. Lastly, I would like to thank those of you who have already signed up. I couldn't do this without you. Anyway, we last left the narrative in early June 1807, about four months after the harrowing ordeal of Eilau. Napoleon and the Grande Armée were in the province of East Prussia, slightly north of the former border with the Polish Commonwealth. They had just fought another brutal battle against the main coalition field army under Count Levin August von Bennigsen, this time at the town of Heilsburg on the banks of the Alla River. Like most of the other major engagements of this campaign, the fighting had been inconclusive. However, although Napoleon had failed to trap Bennigsen's army or inflict a major defeat, the dynamics of the war had changed since the cold, punishing winter. The French had improved their supply and logistics systems, enabling Napoleon to bring more troops into the zone of combat. He had scoured his empire for experienced soldiers to rebuild his depleted field army and brought in more units from eastern Germany. Now the emperor had nearly 200,000 men at his disposal. Bennigsen had received reinforcements as well, but they had been far fewer. He could only call on about 100,000 men. The previous winter, French and coalition forces had been more or less evenly matched. Now, Napoleon enjoyed a decisive numerical advantage. Although, in this poor country with a limited infrastructure network, he was forced to keep his army spread out. At Heilsburg, the coalition forces had managed to stop the Grande Armée and inflicted some serious casualties, then retreated from the battlefield on their own initiative, in good order. While they had failed to gain a clear victory, Heilsburg was not a bad result for the coalition army. Their troops had fought well, they had held on to their positions, and inflicted more casualties on the French than they had suffered themselves. 
However, if we zoom out and look at the broader strategic picture, this relatively good result had not done much to improve Bennigsen's position. With Napoleon's 2 to 1 advantage in manpower, the casualties at Heilsburg were actually proportionally worse for the coalition army. Bennigsen had been forced to retreat to the right bank of the Alla, placing the river between his forces and the Grande Armée. This got Napoleon off his back, but it placed his army in a difficult position. Heilsburg is almost exactly due south of Königsberg, the main base of operations for the coalition forces in this region, and the only remaining major city in Prussia still free from French occupation. As you may remember from previous episodes, Königsberg was the great prize of this phase of the war. Almost all of the Grande Armée's movements over the past six months had been aimed at either taking the city or cutting off Bennigsen's connection to it. As the two armies stood after Heilsburg, Napoleon had a straight shot to the city, due north, along a major road. It was summer, and the conditions were finally right for rapid movement. The coalition army was on the right bank of the Alla, which meanders north-northwest to the Baltic. To use a racing metaphor, the French were on the inside track. Bennigsen would have little hope of preventing Napoleon from reaching Königsberg unless he crossed back over to the left bank. And so, for the first time in over half a year, Napoleon and his army found themselves in a very favorable position, only about 80 kilometers or 50 miles from the great prize of Königsberg, with superior forces, and the enemy field army in no position to stop them. The few enemy units standing between the Grande Armée and the city were mostly weak and disorganized. Bennigsen's army abandoned their positions around Heilsburg on June 12th, two days after the battle. This was a blow to the men's morale. A lot of sweat had gone into building the field fortifications around the town, and a lot of blood had been shed defending them. It must have been galling to simply abandon this position to the enemy. However, with Marshal Davout marching around his flank, Bennigsen had little choice. French occupied the town, and Napoleon began moving his units north. The race to Königsberg was on. The emperor believed Bennigsen would cross the Alla at some point south of Königsberg to make one last attempt to prevent the Grande Armée from reaching the city. Studying his maps, he even had a rough idea of where they might do this. Napoleon hoped to forestall Bennigsen, to get to Königsberg before the enemy had a chance to stop him, and maybe even take the city by storm before the coalition forces had time to react. Some historians have criticized Bonaparte for allowing his units to become too spread out, but in the days after Heilsburg, speed was everything. All other considerations were secondary. The army had to reach Königsberg before Bennigsen made his move. However, Napoleon had misread the enemy's intentions. On the morning of June 12th, a group of French cavalry entered the town of Friedland, a small German-speaking community on the left bank of the Alla River. This was good agricultural land, and Friedland was one of many minor rural towns in this area that served the needs of the local farmers. That afternoon, a group of Russian cavalry crossed the Alla and entered the town. The French horsemen were surprised, and once it became clear the Russians had superior numbers, they fled the town, leaving behind a few unlucky troopers who were captured by the enemy. These types of encounters were quite common whenever two opposing armies were in close proximity, and they usually don't warrant a mention. 
but this minor skirmish at Friedland would have massive consequences. During their interrogation, the captured French cavalrymen revealed that they were advanced scouts of a relatively new formation, the Reserve Corps, under Napoleon's best friend, Marshal Lon, which would soon be marching just to the west of Friedland, on its way north, following the main spearhead of the Grande Armée, currently rushing towards Königsberg. This information soon reached Army headquarters, and General Bennigsen saw an opportunity. There were good reasons the Reserve Corps had not been chosen to lead the attack on Königsberg. These units had suffered badly at Eilau. Many were still depleted, and there were large numbers of untested fresh replacements in the ranks. Then they had suffered nearly 3,000 casualties at Heilsberg, more than any other corps of the army, and that was after a difficult forced march just to get to the battlefield on time. All of this was known to Russian intelligence. So, Bennigsen had good reason to suspect this was one of the weakest components of Napoleon's army. The Russian commander surveyed the ground around Friedland, and liked what he saw. The town itself was quite small, sitting in a big lazy bend of the Otto River. The land rose up from the river in a gentle slope. Outside Friedland was a mill pond with a small stream leading back to the river, a few small outlying settlements, and a forest but mostly this area was just rolling fields of grain. It being early summer, the crops were about waist-high, but that was no serious obstacle to a marching army. A plan began to emerge. What if, instead of racing for Königsberg, the coalition army could quickly cross over the Alla, overwhelm Marshal Lon's weakened corps with superior numbers, then cross back over to safety before the French had time to react? Remember, Bennigsen had tried something similar a week earlier, at the Battle of Gutstadt-Deppen, where he had tried to isolate and pin down Marshal Ney's corps. That battle had been a failure due to poor planning and execution, but the overall strategy had been sound. Napoleon had a manpower advantage of nearly two to one. If Bennigsen hoped to even the odds, he needed to seize any opportunity to attack isolated French units. With the Grande Armée pushing north with all possible speed, Attacking this single understrength corps at Friedland, far south of the main spearhead of the Grande Armée, would be the last thing Napoleon expected. The idea was inventive, bold, and backed up by some solid strategic thinking. However, there were two absolutely huge downsides. First and foremost, attacking Lawn outside Friedland would mean breaking one of the cardinal rules of warfare. The coalition army would be fighting with their backs to a river. If things went wrong, it would be very difficult, maybe even impossible, to get all of the army back over the Alla to safety. Bridges over the river would be like an Achilles heel for the entire army. If the French somehow turned the tables and captured or destroyed those bridges, Bennigsen's entire force might be annihilated. Second, the Russians did not actually know much about the disposition of the Grande Armée. This whole idea was predicated on the fact that Lon's corps was isolated, but Bennigsen did not actually know how isolated it was. Were the nearest major French units a few hours' march away, or a few days' march away? In a battle like this, that could be the difference between a victory that changes the course of a campaign and a complete disaster that destroys the army. With the coalition field army outnumbered and Napoleon bearing down on their base at Königsberg, the war seemed to be turning in France's favor. Bennigsen had to do something to shift the momentum. He decided to roll the dice and attack Lon. 
Less than a week earlier, Napoleon had written, quote, Everything has the air of an impending massive blow, end quote. He didn't know it yet, but that blow would come at Friedland. Bennigsen himself was in awful shape. As you may remember from last episode, he was suffering badly from a mystery ailment, probably a kidney stone. This was still causing him incredible pain. He couldn't even mount a horse. Emperor Alexander's representative with the army had actually already discussed temporarily replacing him, but these plans had not been put into effect. The combination of constant pain and constant physical activity had taken a toll. Bennigsen had kept a punishing schedule over the past few weeks. He was 62 years old and dealing with a severe medical condition. No surprise, he was completely exhausted. The coming battle would not see him in top form. But if his officers questioned his judgment, they kept it to themselves. Russian engineers began assembling all of the army's prefabricated temporary bridges at Friedland. This would maximize the speed at which he could move his forces back and forth over the Alla, but it also meant there would be no possibility of building new bridges if the position at Friedland fell to the French. Bennigsen was going all in on this attack. For the coalition army, it would be victory or death. Napoleon and the rest of the French leadership still had no idea. They were fixated on Königsberg, and assumed any confrontation with Bennigsen and the enemy field army would come in the north, near the city. As the Russian engineers built their bridges at Friedland, the few remaining coalition forces on the left bank of the Alla were engaged in desperate fighting. The Prussian general Lestock and his chief of staff, the very capable Colonel Scharnhorst, took it upon themselves to organize these forces, and led them in a desperate fighting retreat trying to hold off the advancing French as they fell back towards Königsberg. They actually did a very good job, all things considered, but there was simply no stopping the tidal wave of advancing French troops. By the afternoon of June 13th, Marshal Murat's advance units had reached the outskirts of Königsberg. They attempted to storm the city, but coalition forces fell back behind the walls and were able to hold them off. Meanwhile, to the south, Bennigsen's engineers completed their bridges, and the bulk of his forces began assembling along the banks of the Alla, waiting their turn to cross. It had been a punishing two days for the coalition army. Some units had covered over 54 kilometers, or 34 miles, in less than 48 hours. There had been no time to issue rations. The disheartening retreat from Heilsburg was still fresh in everyone's minds. Were they really prepared to risk the entire campaign on a single lightning attack? On the other hand, as you know, this army had proved it could persevere through terrible hardship. Ready or not, the crossing would soon begin. Just as those captured French cavalry troopers had said, Marshal Lawn and his reserve corps were now in the area just west of Friedland. It didn't take long for their light cavalry scouts to notice enemy activity in the town. Lon still did not know Bennigsen's entire army was waiting just across the river, but his scouts had seen enough to warrant a message to the emperor, warning him that a significant number of enemy troops were crossing the Alla at Friedland. Napoleon received this message just before nine in the evening. This information put him in a bind. If this was the entire enemy field army moving to attack Lon, he would need to get reinforcements to Friedland as quickly as possible to prevent the reserve corps from being overwhelmed. 
However, if this was only a small limited offensive or a raid, it might draw the Grande Armée away from Königsberg at the key moment. And so Napoleon would take a middle course, diverting some units towards Friedland while maintaining the drive north, towards Königsberg. Here's how he explained the situation in his response to Marshal Lahn. Quote, Your staff officer arrived here a moment ago, but cannot give me sufficient information to let me know whether it is the entire enemy army that is deploying through Friedland, or only a part. In any case, Grouchy's division is already on the road, and when he reaches you, he will immediately assume command of the cavalry under your orders. Marshal Mortier is also sending off his cavalry in support of yours, and is about to move off with his whole corps. According to the news I receive, I may also send Marshal Ney to your aid first thing in the morning, if, from the information extracted from your captives, you are certain the enemy is not in force, I expect you to attack Friedland, and make yourself master of this important position. Write to me every two hours. Send me prisoners' interrogation reports. End quote. So, as you can see, Napoleon was keeping his options open, but as of yet, he did not believe Bennigsen was deploying his entire force at Friedland, although the emperor was open to the possibility that he was wrong and was already preparing contingencies. The Russians began crossing the river in earnest after nightfall, hoping to mask their numbers. By sunrise, there were about 10,000 coalition troops on the left bank of the river, with more arriving by the minute. The battle had not yet begun, but already the numbers were not looking good for the coalition. Bennigsen was planning to quickly overwhelm Lawn with superior numbers, before other French units had time to arrive. However, unbeknownst to the Russian leadership, the first French reinforcements had actually already reached Marshal Lawn, a group of several thousand cavalry under General Grouchy. And so, as the two forces stood at sunrise, the French actually had a slight numerical advantage, 10,000 coalition troops versus about 12,000 French. Of course, Bennigsen's reinforcements were much closer. The rest of his army was just across the river, waiting their turn to cross. However, they were finding it much more difficult to get into position than their commanders had anticipated. The narrow streets of Friedland created a bottleneck, leading to traffic jams on the bridges. Once they finally got out of the town, they discovered that the outlying terrain was not quite as easy and open as it had looked through Bennigsen's spyglass. The slope up from the riverbank was quite gradual, but there was, in fact, a significant difference in elevation. The French held the high ground, and the coalition units had to move uphill to get into position. Those gently rolling waves of grain Bennigsen had observed from the other bank turned out to be covering up a broken landscape, crisscrossed by ravines, gullies, and hills. That picturesque little country mill stream was closer to a river. It was fordable, but any unit crossing it would have to slow down, break formation, and then reform on the other side, and it cut right through the center of the position Bennigsen was hoping to occupy. Once the coalition army got into position, it would be effectively split down the middle. All told, there was actually only a single narrow strip of open country on the entire battlefield, about half a mile or 800 meters wide. These were far from ideal conditions for rapid movement. Nonetheless, by now the die was cast. There would be a battle outside Friedland on the 14th of June, 1807. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. At about 4.30 in the morning, it was light enough for the coalition forces to begin advancing towards the French lines. The Battle of Friedland had begun. Bennigsen had good reasons to start the day with an attack. He wanted to expand his bridgehead and engage the French, to keep them pinned down in the vicinity of Friedland. However, he warned his generals not to push too hard. Bennigsen didn't want to drive the French from the battlefield before he had a chance to launch his killing blow, and he wouldn't be ready for that until more of his army had crossed the Yala. If the Russian generals pushed too hard, they might miss their chance to destroy Lon's corps. And so the Russian generals used extreme caution, pulling their punches, and declining to exploit their successes. In fact, they may have actually been too cautious. Watching these early enemy attacks, it was immediately clear to the French leadership that Bennigsen was planning something, something much bigger than a raid across the river. Shortly after the attack began, two of Bennigsen's senior staff officers were wounded by a near miss from a French artillery shell, and had to be rushed off the battlefield. Remember, Bennigsen himself could barely move. He was relying on his staff to act for him on the front lines. Losing two of his best men at the very beginning of the battle was a handicap for the coalition command structure. The early fighting was perhaps most intense in the northern sector of the battlefield, along the left of the French line, commanded by General Emmanuel Grouchy, and on the right of the Russian lines, commanded by General Alexei Gorchakov. As was often the case in Napoleonic battles, much of the action in this area focused on the only nearby settlement, a small village called Heinrichsdorf. It was occupied by French cuirassiers, but they were taken by surprise when a large unit of Gorchakov's Cossacks galloped into the village. Many were cut down, and the survivors fled in panic. A small group of dismounted Frenchmen were able to barricade themselves inside the local inn and hold off the Cossacks like something out of a western. With his men falling back, the local French commander, General Nansouti, ordered a retreat. His superior, General Grouchy, was furious and rode out among the retreating heavy cavalry, trying to countermand the order and rally the men, but it was no use. Grouchy rode back to his headquarters and was soon met by a messenger from the overall French commander, Marshal Lon. The messenger told him that the rest of the line was under severe pressure, there could be no reinforcements. And not only that, Grouchy and his troops had to hold this position, to the last man, or the entire force would be outflanked. Grouchy mostly had cavalry at his disposal, and so, despite the odds, he decided to attack. He began preparing several units of dragoons to charge towards Heinrichsdorf. Hopefully they could retake the village and knock the wind out of the enemy attack. By now, the Russian Cossacks had been reinforced by regular cavalry, several units of Uhlans armed with lances. 
As the French dragoons trotted forward, the Uhlans and some of the Cossacks rode out to meet them. Grouchy's dragoons advanced in a narrow column, then fanned out at the last minute. The Russians didn't realize they were badly outnumbered until it was far too late. The French charge slammed home, and the two forces engaged in hand-to-hand combat. The outnumbered Russians got the worst of it, and soon the surviving Uhlans and Cossacks began looking for an exit. However, the French were able to drive them against a wooden fence on the outskirts of the village, and many were cut down. Grouchy's troopers were only gaining momentum. By now, the French heavy cavalry who had retreated at the beginning of the battle were reforming and joining the fight. Heinrichsdorf was retaken, and the French began building barricades in the streets against future attacks. On the other side of the lines, General Gorchakov launched a counterattack. More cavalry, but this time with infantry support. This type of combined arms attack could have done some real damage against a force that was almost entirely cavalry, but Grouchy was able to separate the Russian horsemen from their infantry with a feigned retreat, then countercharge them. The ensuing fight caused horrible casualties on both sides, but succeeded in blunting the coalition advance. Closer to the village, the Russian general von Paulin led his men in a charge against a group of French cuirassiers. Paulin was a bold man and led from the front, galloping far ahead of his troopers. A brave French cuirassier rode out to meet him, and the two engaged in single combat. Paulin slashed at the cuirassier's face with his saber, but the Frenchman ducked his head so the blow landed on his helmet instead. This took real toughness. Getting whacked in the head by roughly two pounds or a kilogram of steel by a man on a galloping horse does not feel good, even if it is only a glancing blow. As the French cuirassier ducked, he lunged forward with his heavy straightsword, catching General Paulin in the torso. The Russian commander seemed badly hit. He staggered, then tried to wheel his horse around to ride back to safety, but it was too late. The French cuirassier lunged forward again, this time running him through, with such force that Paulin's horse was wounded as well. Seeing their general fall seems to have galvanized the Russian horsemen, because they charged home with a terrible ferocity, scattering the French cuirassiers. However, Gorchakov did not move forward any of his infantry to exploit the gap, and the moment soon passed. Combat continued like this in the northern sector for hours, dominated by cavalry, a non-stop back and forth of charge and countercharge. A Russian light cavalry officer said that at Friedland, his men were not hussars, but eagles. Eagles or not, the coalition forces were not able to retake Heinrichsdorf. General Grouchy's bold charge had saved the French left flank. After the battle, Napoleon would be so pleased with his performance, he would make him a marshal of France. Slightly to the south, there was a similar struggle underway at another small village, Postanen. A French officer described the action. Quote, the Grenadier Division under General Oudinot, supported by General Grouchy's dragoons, had been engaged since daybreak opposite the village of Postanen, by way of which the Russians were endeavoring to deploy, with a view to a vigorous attack on us. Many charges of cavalry had taken place on the flanks of the village, whilst our infantry had been driven from it five or six times after taking possession of it. From every one of these charges, our cuirassiers brought back many prisoners. 
but the enemy, still supposing they had but the small body of men they could see to deal with, directed a furious cannonade upon the place. End quote. The southern quarter of the battlefield, along the French right and coalition left, was dominated by woods, an area known as the Sortlock Forest. This type of terrain was the natural habitat of the light infantry. Napoleon's light infantry, the famous voltigeurs of the Grande Armée, were known as some of the best skirmishers in the world. But light infantry tactics were not exactly a specialty of the Russian army. The coalition forces had superior numbers in this sector, but whenever they cleared the forest of the French, the voltigeurs would simply reform and infiltrate back into the woods, using the difficult terrain to conceal their movements. Using these tactics, a group of under a thousand French light infantry were able to hold off more than three times as many Russians. Finally, the local Russian commander, Prince Bagration, called forward the Siberian Jaeger Regiment, one of the best light infantry units in the army. But the Siberians chose to eschew light infantry tactics. Instead of quietly infiltrating the forest, they charged right in with fixed bayonets, and were finally able to take the position for the coalition. Bagration and his men had finally achieved their first objective, but it had come at a terrible cost. Not only had it taken far longer and been far bloodier than anyone had imagined, both of Bagration's senior subordinates, Generals Bagavut and Markov, had been badly wounded and had to be taken off the field. Russian command and control in this area would suffer for the rest of the day. By now, there had been hard fighting around Friedland for several hours, and Marshal Lon's officers reported more and more Russian units appearing on the battlefield. It was becoming clear to the French leadership that something very serious was underway, and they might be in grave danger if they were not reinforced soon. At around seven in the morning, Lon turned to one of his aides and told him, quote, Ride your horse into the ground if you have to, but tell the emperor we're fighting the entire Russian army. End quote. Napoleon's response indicated that he had redirected more forces towards Friedland, and that more French units would arrive on the battlefield imminently. However, he remained skeptical that the entire Russian army was concentrating at Friedland. This would not be the first time a subordinate under pressure from the enemy had overestimated the size of the opposing force. But Lon and his senior officers could see the masses of Russian troops with their own eyes and at least some of them were growing impatient with Napoleon's skepticism. One of Lon's subordinates, General Nicolas Oudinot, wrote in his next report to the emperor, quote, Even my little eyes can see this is the whole Russian army, end quote. Oudinot did in fact have beady little eyes. The emperor was still not entirely convinced, but by now he himself was on his way to Friedland. Within a few hours, he would see for himself. Meanwhile, back on the battlefield, Marshal Lon ordered his men to use the tall fields of crops as camouflage, to move back and forth in the face of the enemy, to make it appear they were stronger than they really were, and hopefully to deter Bennigsen from attacking the French center, which was critically weakened after sending reinforcements to both flanks. This was the period of greatest danger for Lon and his men. They had received some reinforcements, mostly cavalry, who obviously could get to the battlefield much faster than infantry. By nine in the morning, Lon had about 17,000 men at his disposal, about half infantry and half cavalry. 
However, on the other side of the lines, Bennigsen's troops were finally starting to move a little more efficiently. The combination of daylight and the expanding bridgehead around Friedland enabled their units to get across the river and into position much more quickly. By 9 o'clock, Bennigsen had about 45,000 men across the Alla, an advantage of nearly 3 to 1. These were the types of numbers Bennigsen needed if he wanted to realize his plan of a quick, overwhelming assault on Lawn. However, as his men advanced, they struggled to gain momentum. They were moving uphill, often over broken ground, towards an enemy they could not clearly see. They were repeatedly charged by French cavalry, forcing them to stop and form squares, then reform their assault columns before they could continue the attack. According to Russian intelligence, Lon's corps included some of the weakest and most depleted units in the whole Grande Armée, but the French were fighting tenaciously. Lon and his men were under tremendous pressure, but with their enemies moving slowly and the advantages of high ground and good terrain, Lon was able to shuffle his units around to meet the enemy with almost equal force wherever they appeared. It must have been incredibly frustrating for the Russian leadership. They had a 3-to-1 advantage over the enemy, but somehow, whenever they pressed the attack, the French had the manpower to hold them off. Meanwhile, there were now tens of thousands of French troops on the march, all converging on Friedland. The window in which Bennigsen would enjoy this numerical advantage would be very small, and as his army struggled to make any headway, that window was already beginning to close. Marcelin Marbeau, a young French staff officer who we've quoted from in many past episodes, had recently been transferred to Marshal Lon's staff. At around this time, Lon sent him to the rear with another update for the emperor. Marbeau found Napoleon and his staff on the road and described the emperor's mood. Quote, I found him radiating joy. He placed me beside him, and as we galloped onward, I explained what had taken place before my departure from the battlefield. End quote. He then relates a conversation he had with Napoleon. Quote, when my tale was told, the emperor asked me, smiling, How good is your memory? Passably, sire. Well then, what anniversary is today? The 14th June. That of Marengo. Yes, yes, that of Marengo. And I am going to beat the Russians, just as I beat the Austrians. End quote. Marbeau then finishes the anecdote, quote, Napoleon was so convinced about this that as he passed the columns, whose soldiers saluted him with numerous cheers, he repeatedly called out, Today is a happy day. It is the anniversary of Marengo. End quote. Perhaps not the most appropriate attitude to take, with thousands of people losing their lives and being horribly maimed with every passing hour, but after fruitlessly chasing Bennigsen and his army for the better part of a year, perhaps we can't blame the Emperor for feeling a little joy, now that the end of this ruinous war might finally be coming into sight. Marbeau's is just one of several accounts that describe Napoleon repeating this line about the Battle of Marengo. Bonaparte really did believe in lucky dates, and the idea of a repeat performance exactly seven years after Marengo seems to have excited him. Just after nine in the morning, Marshal Edouard Mortier and his staff arrived on the battlefield, followed by just under 13,000 men of 8th Corps of the Grande Armée, 
one division of veteran French troops, and one of Poles, members of the old Polish Legion, bolstered by ex-insurgents who had risen up against the Prussians and Russians in the Greater Poland Uprising the previous autumn. These men were very tired. They had been marching since one in the morning, but they were ready to fight and went right into action. The mood was beginning to change in the French lines. Throughout the morning, they had been focused on survival. Now, it was beginning to look like they had the chance to win a victory. The first of Mortier's infantry to arrive were his French veterans. Lon ordered them to take up positions in the center, the weakest part of his line. Unfortunately for the French, the arrival of these new troops only provoked the Russians, who immediately launched an assault, and pushed them back considerably before they finally ran out of steam. Crucially, these charging Russian infantry captured several French prisoners, who were taken back to coalition headquarters and interrogated. Bennigsen was now aware that Lon had received significant reinforcements, and so he began shifting his forces to a defensive stance. There were now over 30,000 French troops deployed around Friedland. Bennigsen's numerical advantage had shrunk dramatically, and Napoleon's men occupied the better positions. Bennigsen had planned to quickly overwhelm Lon before any significant reinforcements could arrive. There had been a window of time in which the Russian army theoretically had the numbers to make that plan work, but with the difficult terrain and tenacious French resistance, they had made little progress. Now, after only a few hours, that window was slamming shut. Meanwhile, Mortier's Polish units were moving into position. They were urged on by their commander, General Jan Henrik Dombrovsky, who had led them through Italy and back to their homeland. Dombrovsky had actually been wounded in the leg, and the blood was dripping down his boot. But he refused medical attention. He called out to his soldiers, quote, Come on, boys, come on. The reaping is beginning. March, march, Poles. Don't be downcast. Do your best. End quote. Dombrovsky could see what was becoming clear to many of the French officers and soldiers outside Friedland. Lon and his men had weathered the storm, and the momentum of the battle was shifting. With Bennigsen's forces moving on to the defensive, by about 11 in the morning, the battle had entered a lull. There was still a lot of cannon fire and sniping and low-intensity fighting between small groups of skirmishers, but no real action to speak of. The coalition attacks had all run out of steam, and the French were busy arranging their units, incorporating all these fresh reinforcements into the line. The numbers were now more or less even, just shy of 50,000 men on each side. Napoleon himself arrived on the battlefield shortly before noon. Despite a huge amount of circumstantial evidence and unanimous reports, he was still not totally convinced the entire enemy army was attacking at Friedland. I think at this stage he was overestimating his opponent. He simply could not believe Bennigsen might have been so reckless as to risk his entire army, perhaps even the outcome of the war, on this dubious attack. As they approached the battlefield, the emperor and his staff were greeted by General Oudinot, who had been leading troops along Lon's right flank since the morning. Oudinot looked like hell. He had been in the thick of the fighting all day, and was covered with sweat, blood, and dust. His uniform was torn in several places by near misses from enemy muskets and grapeshot, and he was bleeding from several minor wounds. He told Napoleon, quote, Hurry, sire, my grenadiers can do no more but give me reinforcements, and I will drive the Russians into the water. 
End quote. A French officer described the emperor's arrival on the battlefield, quote, Imagining that the Russians had only made an attack to cover the retreat of their rearguard, he was very much surprised to hear a prolonged and vigorous cannonade. In his anxiety, he urged on his Arab steed, with which few other horses could keep up, and quickly found himself among a number of wounded who were retreating towards the ambulances. Among them, he recognized Colonel Reynaud of the 15th Regiment of the Line, and stopped to ask him what had happened, if his regiment had retreated, and under what circumstances had he been wounded. Reynaud, who had been struck by a bullet, replied that, tired of seeing his regiment inactive under a decimating fire, he had ordered it to advance and charge the enemy's guns, in hope of capturing some of them, but that a gully he had not been able to see had arrested the men, of whom he had lost 1,500 on its brink. End quote. He then records a conversation between Colonel Reynaud and Napoleon, starting with the colonel. Quote, On the plateau of Friedland, behind the position I had hoped to take, the enemy had just amassed an immense number of men, certainly not less than 80,000. The emperor, still in error as to the state of things, thought this account exaggerated, and exclaimed, That can't be true. To which Reynaud, irritated at being disbelieved, answered, well, I swear on my head that the numbers I have stated are there, and that there will be hot work. The emperor's only reply was to dash his spurs into his Arab steed, which bounded furiously forward, carrying its master into the very midst of the sharpshooters. End quote. The emperor found a piece of high ground with a good vantage point, and began surveying the battlefield. As always, his staff thought he was far too close to the action. The occasional Russian cannonball whizzed past as Napoleon studied the terrain and the disposition of the two forces. The emperor literally could not believe what he saw. How could Bennigsen have been so foolish? He sent his aides down closer to the action to confirm what he saw from his spyglass. He knew Bennigsen was no slouch. He had to be sure he wasn't missing something, that the coalition army really was as vulnerable as it looked. Then, out of the blue, Napoleon expressed his desire to eat lunch. His aides scurried around the French rear and managed to find a chair and a loaf of simple black bread. Napoleon sat down and began munching on his bread, while artillery fire sailed overhead. Someone finally got up the courage to ask him to move further to the rear, at least until he was finished eating. But the emperor dismissed him. Gesturing towards the fighting, he said, quote, They will dine far less comfortably than I. End quote. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. While their leader ate his lunch, his staff officers began to analyze the scene before them. As more and more French units converged on the battlefield, with their enemies' backs to the river, it was increasingly clear that the Grande Armée was in a position to win a decisive victory, if they could seize it. The only question was how and when. Napoleon himself was mostly absent from these discussions. He finished his bread and went back to studying the battlefield through his spyglass. Soon, a consensus emerged among his staff officers. 
the French army should spend the rest of the day gathering its forces, and then, in the morning, hit Bennigsen's vulnerable army with everything they had. Finally, Napoleon himself chimed in, quote, No, no, we can't hope to catch the enemy making the same mistake twice, end quote. Few people had as keen an eye for terrain as the emperor. From his quick study of the battlefield, he had been able to see what Bennigsen had missed the day before. The seemingly open terrain around Friedland was in fact quite constricting. The coalition army was deployed much more awkwardly than it looked at first glance. They would find it very difficult to move from their current positions, and any retreat across the Aula would be painfully slow. By crossing the river where they did, the coalition army had put itself in terrible danger, and now Napoleon would make them pay for their mistake. Meanwhile, on the other side of the lines, the Russian leadership was coming to a similar realization. As their offensive stalled late in the morning, it became clear to Bennigsen and his commanders that their bid to destroy Lon's corps before reinforcements could arrive had failed. As this lull settled over the battlefield, they could see more and more French troops arriving and joining the lines on the heights above their positions. Bennigsen made what must have been a difficult decision. The army had to retreat. The question was, how? As we saw earlier in the episode, it had taken hours of difficult maneuvers to get so many men across the river and into position. With the French occupying the high ground, they would be able to see every movement the Russians made. If they saw a retreat, they would immediately start applying pressure to make it as difficult as possible. The coalition army would be forced to engage in a fighting retreat, moving backwards over that broken ground while holding off the French. A retreat from the battlefield in broad daylight, under pressure from the Grande Armée, was simply not realistic. The only hope for the coalition forces would be to hold out against superior numbers until nightfall, and then try to get as many men as possible over the river under cover of darkness. Bennigsen had trapped his own army. However, there was no panic among the coalition leadership. All they had to do was hold on until nightfall, and they all agreed it was unlikely the French would be able to launch a major attack before then. By the mid-afternoon, there were around 80,000 French troops near Friedland, compared to less than 60,000 coalition forces. The tables had turned. By now, a plan was beginning to form at French headquarters. Marshal Ney would attack the enemy left. This was the part of their line closest to the town of Friedland, and those all-important bridges over the Alla. The nearby Sortlack Forest would enable him to begin his advance under cover. He would be followed by a second wave under General Victor, who had temporarily replaced the wounded Bernadotte as commander of First Corps. They would be followed by a third wave of the Imperial Guard, if necessary. This would be the key maneuver of the battle. Ney's objective was to seize or destroy the bridges at Friedland. With those taken, the enemy army would be truly, permanently trapped. Then, the rest of the army would join in a general offensive all along the line, thus, hopefully, destroying the enemy. Napoleon personally rode out to the Sortlach Forest. Despite the heat, he and Ney put on overcoats to disguise their uniforms and got right up close to the Russian positions. The emperor had to be sure that the opportunity he saw through his spyglass from his headquarters was still there when he looked at it up close. 
He liked what he saw. He instructed Ney to wait for the signal to attack and rode back up the hill. There would not be much time to execute this plan. Napoleon had slated Ney's attack to begin at around 5.30 in the evening, less than four hours before sunset. But, as we know, if anyone could be trusted to attack with speed and aggression, it was Marshal Ney. Meanwhile, the lull continued over the whole battlefield, only interrupted by artillery fire. In some Russian units, the officers allowed their men to sit or even lie down. They were tired, and the sweltering summer heat was taking a toll. Even at Russian headquarters, a more relaxed attitude seemed to be taking hold. A Russian officer explained, quote, At four o'clock, as the battle seemed to subside at all points and only the cannon thundered away, General Bennigsen allowed a tablecloth to be laid on the ground nearby and a cold meal to be served. He himself laid on the ground, sliced some herring, poured the glasses, and invited the surrounding officers to eat and drink. At the same time, he received, with the greatest coolness, the most important reports, and issued general orders, as the cannonballs were flying by, often over the tablecloth, and a few even knocked the glasses over. End quote. Finally, Bennigsen's picnic was spoiled by a report from one of his staff officers. Even more French troops had moved into position nearby, and they seemed to be preparing for an attack. The ailing general began preparing orders to shrink the perimeter around Friedland, to concentrate his forces for a proper defense. But by the time these orders went out, it would be too late. Meanwhile, the always aggressive Marshal Ney was pestering Napoleon with requests to attack, but the emperor kept brushing them off. Finally, Ney became exasperated, and declared that it was too late, and the attack would be postponed until morning. But, almost as soon as he had spoken, he heard the sound he had been waiting for. At about 5.30 in the evening, a French artillery battery fired a sudden salvo towards the coalition lines. This was the signal for Ney and Sixth Corps to begin the advance. The bold, red-haired marshal led his men through the Sortlak forest. If they succeeded, they might win the war. If they failed, there was a good chance Bennigsen would escape yet again. Seeing enemy movement on his left, Bennigsen ordered an attack on his right, hoping to put the French off balance and maybe draw some of Napoleon's attention away from his attack. It wasn't a bad idea, but this offensive got nowhere and failed to achieve the desired effect. Sixth Corps emerged from the Sortlock Forest along the coalition left flank. The enemy in this sector was led by Prince Bagration, one of the most capable leaders in the coalition army. The town of Friedland was tantalizingly close. Ney's men could see the tall red brick clock tower of the town church, rising above the smoke of battle. However, this was the point where Ney's attack was most vulnerable. Here, the French had to fan out, with some of their number pushing due north to protect the flank of the main attack as it veered northeast towards Friedland. It would also take the French right past Abandon the River, where it dipped towards the battlefield. The vast majority of the Russian artillery was still on the right bank. Until now, the trees of the Sortlock Forest had shielded Sixth Corps from their view, but as they made their final push on Friedland, they would have no choice but to march right past a significant Russian artillery battery. 
Behind the lines, Napoleon walked among the ranks of Victor's troops, trying to raise their spirits as they waited to join Ney in the attack. He asked one of the men for a drink, and the presumably surprised soldier handed the emperor a bottle. Napoleon took a sip and exclaimed, quote, By the devil, this is real French brandy. They treat you like lords. End quote. Apparently, this totally broke the tension, and everyone with an earshot burst out laughing. They might not have laughed quite so hard if they could have seen what was going on at the front of the attack. The Russian guns opened fire, and Ney's men suffered terrible casualties. Suddenly, everyone on the south of the battlefield could hear a loud metallic clicking sound, like hail on a metal roof. Sixth Corps were marching with their muskets on their shoulders, with their fixed bayonets high in the air. That clicking was the sound of hundreds of rounds of canister fire bouncing off hundreds of raised bayonets. Under this unbearable fire, the French attack lost momentum. Prince Bagration saw an opportunity. He ordered a counterattack, first the Cossacks, in loose formation, to soften the enemy up, followed by regular cavalry in a traditional charge, to hopefully push them away from Friedland. Ney's cavalry countercharged and drove them back, but the Russians regrouped, received reinforcements, and charged again. This time, it worked. Blasted by the Russian artillery on the far bank, and now faced with thousands of charging Russian horsemen, the men of 6th Corps wavered, then began falling back. Marshal Ney galloped among his men, shouting, Hold firm! But it was of little use. Agration had chosen his moment well, but not quite well enough. Just as his cavalry were making headway, the second wave of the French attack, under General Victor, crashed right into their right flank. The Russian horsemen found themselves under fire from three sides, and were forced to retreat. The French artillery commander on the scene, General Saint-Armand, saw an opportunity and ordered his men to move their guns forward. Very far forward. In fact, within about 600 paces of Bagration's position. This was very unorthodox. Artillery units were incredibly vulnerable when they were on the move. But Saint-Armand gambled that with the Russian cavalry in disarray after their failed counterattack, no Russian units would be able to respond before his guns were set up and ready to open fire. From his headquarters, Napoleon watched as Saint-Armand's gunners moved their cannon awkwardly forward by hand, and he was concerned. He sent a messenger to advise caution, but Saint-Armand brushed him off. Quote, Leave me and my gunners alone. You can hold me responsible. End quote. It took guts to respond to the emperor that way, but his firmness seems to have convinced Napoleon. After hearing Saint-Armand's reply, Napoleon said, quote, There is one unpleasant fellow. Let him be. End quote. Saint-Armand was right. At this close range, the French gunners were able to load their cannon with case shot, effectively giant shotgun shells, loaded with small metal projectiles about the size of musket balls. Each cannon would fire the equivalent of a musket volley from a small infantry unit. Bagration's men were packed tightly together, all squeezed into the relatively small space between that bend in the river and the French lines. They made a perfect target. Hundreds of Russians were mowed down in the space of only a few minutes. Napoleon was so pleased with Saint-Armand that after the battle, he would award him a noble title. 
Amazingly, the men of the Russian left stood and took this punishing bombardment for nearly half an hour, but no soldiers in the world could stand indefinitely in the face of sustained artillery fire. Eventually, they began to fall back. The momentum had shifted back to the attackers. Ney's men took the offensive, now joined by troops from First Corps. Soon, French artillery fire was landing in the town of Friedland. The coalition army was now on the brink of total disaster. The French were only a few hundred paces from their objective. Soon, they would be in a position to bombard those all-important bridges and destroy the coalition army's only possible means of escape. Bennigsen's army was facing annihilation, but there was still time to make one last desperate attempt to stop the French. Bennigsen had the Imperial Guard in his reserve. He ordered them to deploy along the Russian left for a counterattack. If there was anyone who could somehow salvage this horrible fiasco, it was the Russian Imperial Guard. These were some of the best soldiers anywhere in the world. As they had at Austerlitz, the Russian guardsmen charged with fixed bayonets. Against all odds, they succeeded in stopping and then rolling back Ney's advanced units. One of their commanders, General Nikolai Mazovsky, urged his men forward, quote, My friends, we will die or conquer here. Forward, boys. End quote. Mazovsky was wounded, but stayed at the front, leading his troops. He was hit again, but again refused to seek medical care. He was hit a third time, and finally went down, mortally wounded. His last words were, quote, My friends, do not lose heart. End quote. Nightfall was only a few hours away. If the Russian guard could somehow roll back this offensive and hold off the French just for a few more hours, just long enough for darkness to envelop the battlefield, the coalition army could still avoid disaster. But it was not to be. The French artillery tore bloody holes into the guard's formation, and other French units to the north redirected their advance to push into the flank and rear of the Russian guardsmen as they advanced. Soon, the guard was giving up ground, and Ney's men were back on the advance. By about seven in the evening, the Russians had been pushed back into the town of Friedland itself. The tightly packed buildings and narrow streets made this a highly defensible location. But Ney's men didn't need to actually take Friedland to accomplish their mission. French artillery blasted Friedland, and those all-important bridges. Soon, the bridges were on fire, along with much of the town. Some sources claim these fires were started by the French artillery, others that the Russians started them themselves to prevent Ney's troops from chasing them over the river. In any case, there was no conceivable way to move tens of thousands of men through the narrow streets of this burning town, past the muskets of Sixth Corps, and over the flaming bridges to safety. Bennigsen's army was finally, truly trapped. Now the rest of the French line advanced. Morale and the coalition ranks had plummeted. The soldiers were tired, hungry, and had been fighting fruitlessly in savage combat for over 12 hours. Many of these men were veterans. They could understand that the army was in a precarious position, and they knew the French advance on Friedland meant almost certain doom. 
Meanwhile, it was the opposite story on the French lines. From their high vantage points, they could see the enemy was trapped, and a stunning victory was at hand. And so, unsurprisingly, the coalition forces fell back in the face of ferocious French attacks. The Russian bridgehead was shrinking. Coalition officers told their troops to hold, but surely every man had the same word in the back of his mind. Escape. With their enemies increasingly panicked and disorganized, the French artillery moved closer to that shrinking bridgehead, raking the helpless masses of coalition troops with grapeshot. They brought their cannons within 300 paces of the enemy, then 150 paces, then just 60 paces. No one could miss from this range. Just like at Eilau four months earlier, after the battle, they would find piles of corpses still in discernible formation, where entire units had been mown down all at once. Some Russian troops were able to ignore their instincts and tried to engage the French in a fighting retreat, but for others, the impulse to run was too great. Tragic and chaotic scenes played out in the streets of Friedland. The narrow alleys were choked with masses of panicked men. By now, the bridges were totally impassable, engulfed in flames and sinking into the Alla. But they were only visible from the town itself, and so Russian soldiers continued streaming into Friedland, unaware that there was no escape to be had. Meanwhile, the French continued to press forward. An officer of the Grande Armée remembered it this way, quote, Every house in the little town of Friedland was crowded with wounded Russians, and the reserve forces of the enemy made superhuman efforts to prevent us from entering it. But we advanced all the same, and the fighting went on in the streets, which became literally choked with bodies of men and horses, killed by shot or bayonet. At last, as the sun went down, the French found themselves masters of the town, with no more enemies left to repulse." End quote. In other places, coalition soldiers stripped off their equipment and heavy wool uniform jackets and took their chances trying to swim the Alla. Some of them made it. Many did not. For weeks after the battle, the local peasants would be fishing bodies out of the river. As always, casualty estimates vary, but most accounts of this battle agree that at least a few thousand coalition troops drowned in the river. A French guardsman would later remember, quote, The Russians fought like lions. They preferred to be drowned rather than to surrender. End quote. Maybe that was true of some men, but for others, panic must have played a role. When Marshal Ney returned to French headquarters, Napoleon threw his arms around him and kissed him on both cheeks, saying, quote, I am well pleased. You have won us the battle. End quote. Marshal Ney replied, quote, Sire, we are all Frenchmen. We won together. End quote. Some coalition units were able to escape. At the extreme right of the Russian line, many regiments simply slipped around the jaws of the French trap and marched to safety. Napoleon has been criticized by some historians for not ordering any pursuit of these forces, who might easily have been trapped and destroyed. In the center right of the coalition line, the Russians had identified an area where the river was shallow and could be forded on foot, although only with some time and difficulty. Many units in this sector were able to make the crossing while brave comrades held off the advancing French. 
However, the vast majority of the men who crossed over to the left bank of the Ala during the night of the 13th and morning of the 14th were killed, captured, or drowned. Battle of Friedland was over. It was another crushing victory for Napoleon and the Grande Armée. Maybe not on quite the same scale as Jena or Austerlitz, but certainly not far off. Bennigsen had taken a big gamble in bringing his army over the Ala to face Marshal Lond. He had lost, and it cost him nearly half his army. After any major battle, we can analyze dozens of different factors that influenced events, but I do have to wonder about General Bennigsen's health. His misjudgment of the situation at Friedland is central to this story, and we know that he was not at his best totally exhausted, and suffering badly from his kidney problems. Some of his own officers later speculated that if he had gotten a comfortable night's sleep on the 13th, there would never have been a battle at Friedland on the 14th. It would be an exaggeration to say that the fate of the continent was decided by one man's kidney stone, but it is amazing the way a small, seemingly insignificant bit of trivia can help shape important events. Friedland was an absolute disaster for the coalition, in almost every sense imaginable. But it could have been worse. There was barely any organized pursuit of the retreating enemy. As we know from past episodes, after a great victory, the cavalry were typically unleashed to chase after the losing army. This pursuit was often actually more devastating than the defeat itself. However, at Friedland, the remains of Bennigsen's army were able to flee the battlefield in almost total safety. I have seen several different explanations for this. It was already dark, and maybe Napoleon did not think a pursuit would be fruitful. Or, the army was tired and hungry from their forced marches to get to the battlefield. Maybe they actually weren't able. Or, perhaps most interestingly, Napoleon might have been thinking about his diplomatic position. Remember, the goal of this whole campaign was to bring the Russians over to his side. Turning this victory into a massacre might have had the opposite effect, stealing their resolve and giving them a desire for revenge. In any case, the remains of the coalition forces were able to flee the battlefield, but they left behind tens of thousands of their comrades, killed or captured by the French. Low estimates place the coalition casualties at around 20,000, high estimates at 40,000. It should be said, this was not a totally one-sided victory. The Russians had fought very hard, and managed to inflict perhaps as many as 10,000 casualties on the French. Once again, the battle had been lost by mistakes at the top, not by any lack of courage or toughness among the common soldiers. When news of Bennigsen's defeat reached Königsberg, the garrison and the remains of the Prussian government immediately began evacuating the city. This wasn't just because of Friedland. With two French corps just outside the gates, preparations had already begun. But with the main coalition army shattered, there was no longer any hope of holding on to this position for any length of time. It must have been a particularly bitter moment for the Prussian court. Their country's terrible losses in the previous autumn had left them almost entirely dependent on their Russian allies. But at Königsberg, they were still technically on their own soil. They could at least pretend that Napoleon's conquest of their country was nothing more than a temporary setback. Now, King Frederick William III and his court were being driven into exile. There were a few remaining strongholds where Prussian soldiers bravely held on against besieging French forces. But with the king fleeing abroad, 
there was no longer any denying the fact that Prussia was lost. To his credit, the day after the battle, Bennigsen took responsibility for the disaster. Quote, I freely admit that I should have done better not to undertake the affair of Friedland. I had the power, and I would have been safer to maintain my resolution not to undertake a major battle, since it was not necessary to ensure the safety of my army's march. However, false reports, with which every general is often beset, had raised in me the erroneous view, which was confirmed by all my intelligence, that Napoleon had, with the greater part of his army, taken the road towards Königsberg. End quote. Interestingly, he seems not to have understood the reason for his defeat. His intelligence was, in fact, correct. The bulk of the Grande Armée was on the road to Königsberg when he launched his attack on Marshal Long. His mistake was underestimating the speed at which they could redirect themselves towards Friedland. He was used to fighting the French in the Polish winter, when bad weather and horrible logistics problems had dramatically limited the mobility of Napoleon's forces. The Grande Armée's performance at Friedland proved it was a very different story in the summer. Obviously, with hindsight, Bennigsen's decision to attack the French at this time and place turned out to be extremely bad. However, I do find it understandable. With Napoleon on the inside track to Königsberg and the coalition forces outnumbered two to one, it was not a bad idea to try to do something unexpected and creative to try to even the odds. With the campaign slipping out of his grasp, Bennigsen had tried a high-risk gamble. The time was right for a throw of the dice, but Friedland was an awful choice of venue. In the days after the battle, the remains of the coalition forces in Poland and East Prussia marched northeast, towards the town of Tilsit on the Russian-Prussian border. The French pursued them, but without much energy or aggression. On June 18th, four days after Friedland, a Russian general arrived at French headquarters under a flag of truce, bearing a message from Emperor Alexander. The Russians were ready to talk terms for peace. With his gamble at Friedland, not only had Bennigsen lost nearly half his army, he had lost the war. Since December 1806, Napoleon had been seeking a victory that would bring the Russians to the negotiating table. It had taken six months, but at Friedland, he had finally achieved that goal. Next episode, we'll discuss the diplomatic negotiations between France and Russia, as Napoleon and Alexander sought to build a new geopolitical order for Europe. Until then, thanks for listening. Lastly, don't forget to check out other podcasts on our network, like The History of Egypt, Infamous America, or Redacted History.
Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt.